Welcome to The Dispatch from Newberry Consulting Services, where we believe in building community through better management, better teams, and better business. I'm your host, Trevor Newberry, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome back to The Dispatch. So if you're a regular listener, you may already know that, despite working with software founders today, my background is actually in food and beverage. That's right. Yours truly has been everything from a dishwasher to server, bartender, cook, manager, and everything in between when it comes to hospitality and food service. While I'm sometimes tempted to consider this a black mark on my record as a tech-oriented professional, in reality, I think it's a superpower. There are very few industries that are more difficult to find success in than food and beverage. Even when you've climbed to the top of the ladder, you're often barely scraping 50k a year. If you're lucky, your hours and benefits probably suck and you're constantly hustling for margins as low as 3 to 5%. It's a brutal way to make a living. And what thick skin and resourcefulness I can claim comes from years and years in the trenches. So, what does that have to do with today's episode? Well, the last and longest stint I had in the industry was in coffee, and my guest today is in the thick of it with his business. Wade Preston is the co-founder of Prevail Coffee Roasters, based in Montgomery, Alabama. Of the many paths in the food and beverage industry, very few are as unique and, frankly, misunderstood as the world of specialty coffee. In today's episode, we dive deep into the economics and strategies of working in the specialty coffee world, what makes this part of the industry so special, and why Montgomery is kind of a badass place to own and operate your business. Wade is a super nice guy, a talented businessman, and artisan, and runs one of my favorite coffee companies in the Southeast. So I hope you guys enjoy my conversation with Wade Preston. All right, Wade, welcome to The Dispatch. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm excited to have uh, this conversation uh, as it gets me back to my uh, my roots in the coffee industry. So this will be a fun interview. Um, as always, uh, I would love to kick off with you just telling the listeners a bit about yourself, uh, what you do, and uh, how you got there. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Uh, excited to dig into it, and uh, welcome back to uh, the illustrious life of the coffee industry. I'm glad you come by for a visit. <laughs> um, uh, slum it down here with us again for a while. Um, but yeah, I, um, I tell people that I'm from Alabama. Um, I grew up in West Mobile, um, went to, uh, uh, junior high and high school in Birmingham, right outside of Birmingham in Trussell. Um, I went to college at Auburn, and I now live in Montgomery. So I've done the full tour of Alabama um, in between Auburn and uh, uh, kind of coming back through Auburn and, and getting to Montgomery. I also lived in Jacksonville, Florida, Atlanta. Spent a little bit of time uh, in Colorado, too. Worked on a ranch um, <laughs> on the nice. front range, which was fun. Yeah, but um, I, um, I'm an Alabama kid, but I've I've seen a lot, a lot of the world, um, thankfully, and that's been cool. Uh, I am married with two kids, a seven-year-old daughter and a three-year-old daughter, and we've been kind of living this entrepreneurial life all together um, as a family, which has been um, awesome and uh, terrifying and stressful and uh, also a lot of fun. So It sounds about yeah. right. Yeah. I, uh, I know that, uh, I don't have kids, but I do know about the entrepreneurial life being wonderful and terrifying and awful and the best all at the same time. So, um, 
So you uh, are the founder of Prevail Coffee Roasters. Um, you guys are based in Montgomery, correct? Yes, um, I will. I will correct you and say co-founder. This was co-founder. definitely a, a yeah, husband and wife thing starting out, and um, I'm kind of the the loud, obnoxious one. I'm just the pretty face of the thing. My wife is <laughs> the brains of it all. Um, uh, which, if you saw it together, you would not think that was the case. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, she's she's the one. She's kind of the glue that holds the whole thing together. I'm the guy out front uh, screaming and yelling and roasting coffee and making lattes and stuff. So, uh, yeah. Nice. Nice. So, um, you know, most of the folks that we talk to on this podcast really haven't been, pardon me, um, really haven't been in the food and beverage industry. Um, this is kind of, uh, I think one of the first that I've, uh, I've done in that industry. So tell us a little bit about the coffee industry and what makes it so unique. Now, I mean, I could, but I have you here as the guest to tell us that. So, um, yeah, give us a little bit of background on that. Yeah, I think, I mean, first of all, just, I think the food and beverage industry in general is really unique in the sense that, uh, there's so much implicit trust in the food and beverage industry. I mean, you think about there are really only three professions where we just put all of our trust into someone uh, to the point that we say, yes, if you give me something that I will ingest into my body, I trust that I trust you with that. And it's they're doctors, pharmacists, and um, food and beverage workers. And I mean, think of the, uh, the, type of training you have to go through to become a doctor or a pharmacist and um you know the type of training you have to go into to go in the food and beverage industry yeah like 20 uh, 20 minute video yeah yes uh yeah kind of run through your online serve safe certification um maybe um and uh you know we're like the only industry that doesn't um you know cross the board drug test for the most part too um uh, so it's this, it's always struck me as a strange thing that, um, it, it, that we put so much implicit trust in the food and beverage, uh, industry being what it is. But, um, at the same time, like the food and beverage industry delivers, like it's a really cool, um, commentary on just like humanity and community that like, we can, we can put our, our, our faith in other people to prepare us good, safe, wholesome, foods and beverages and um you know by and large i mean in the 99 and a half percent like that that happens um you know uh and everybody stays healthy and safe yeah. and um and for the most part enjoys it uh, so i just think i've always thought that was a really cool um thing about uh the food and beverage industry in general um coffee is such a weird animal even within the food and beverage industry and it's honestly like a really new animal this idea that you can you can make a living by opening up um a little storefront that just sold like essentially a cup of coffee you know in different manifestations um that that's only been a a possibility for you know two or three decades now and um it's a very low ticket price and um you have to do a whole lot of volume and i think that you also have to understand that you're selling something beyond just the product itself. Um, you, you're, um, you're inviting people into a community. Um, you're introducing them to a, a particular uh, philosophy or ethos. 
And um, I think those are the things that set um, you know, great uh, coffee companies apart uh, are the ones that you don't, it's not just that they have a good product, but they, they also give you a, a feeling that you're a part of something larger. And that's exactly what we try to do uh, at Prevail. Yeah. So you just, you sort of uh, <clears throat> hinted or alluded to uh, the economics of it. Um, coffee, you know, and like I, I alluded to at the beginning of this, I worked in coffee for about 10 years um, in varying capacities um, from roasting to uh, preparation to management. Um, and I think one of the things that people don't, uh, this is true of the entire food and beverage industry, but I think coffee specifically, um, because of its low price point, um, making that work, making that those economics work, uh, as a business is really, really difficult when your average cup of coffee is three to $5. The, the, the volume that you have to do, uh, is incredible. And I think that also leads uh, to another common thing uh, is where people actually end up doing other things like wholesaling, uh, roasting and wholesaling, which is something that Prevail does as well, correct? Uh, yes. And uh, yeah, I think there's a few different ways that that happens in our industry, a few different models where, um, you know, yeah, you just have your your, your typical um, neighborhood coffee shop, you know, that uh, is sourcing coffee from um, a particular roaster uh, that they're working with on a, a B2B capacity, um, or maybe multi-roaster shop where they're, they're working with several different roasters. Um, and then you have, uh, you know, people who are doing shop roasting, you know, you see like a little small roasting operation inside of the coffee shop. And most of the roasting that they're doing is just for in-house uh, use. And then there are folks like us that uh, we have a whole separate operation, a wholesale roasting operation that's capable of, um, we could probably roast about maximum capacity, about 2,500 pounds of coffee a week. Um, uh, maybe one day we will be roasting that much coffee, but um, it's good to have a little latent capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the coffee roastery services our um, cafe or cafes. Um, and, um, uh, we also uh, have numerous wholesale customers across the state. Um, we typically work with other, um, especially coffee shops and high-end restaurants. Uh, it's kind of our our niche. Uh, we don't do a ton of, of grocery store like prepack sales or sure. any of that stuff. We we try to stick with you know kind of uh, community-focused businesses that we like to work with. So one of the reasons that. Um or one of the things that I think is interesting about that and that we experienced as well when I was uh, working with a coffee roaster in Birmingham, uh, you just mentioned you don't do a lot of grocery sale, um, things like that. And and I think there's probably like a social aspect of that to you guys. Like you just mentioned, like wanting to do like community focused businesses. Um, but also there is something that I think a lot of people don't understand about coffee and interested to hear you talk about this is uh, it's a very linear product, right? So it's not something that... Uh, the quality of what ends up in the cup can be impacted irrevocably. It can't be corrected after it's been negatively impacted at a number of different stages along the way. So there's no, uh, there's really no like wiggle room for failure. It has to be grown well. It has to be harvested and processed well. It has to be stored correctly, shipped correctly. It has to end up in your hands, roasted really well, put through good equipment when it's being prepared from the grinder to the the brewer and it has to be in the hands of a capable barista. It's a really unforgiving product. 
Yeah, that's a, that is exactly why we are probably more particular than most companies about the um, B2B relationships that we um, enter into. Uh, because I mean, you you nailed it. it, it Coffee is a very strange product in the sense that um, you know, if you buy a good craft beer from a brewery or the grocery store, you open up that beer and you drink the beer, and it is um, hopefully exactly the way that that brewer intended it to taste. So long as it's kind of stayed in the cold chain, and and you know, there's not a lot you can screw up with it. Um, maybe even more so with wine, you know, like once the wine sure. gets in the bottle and the corks get on it, um, unless something terrible has happened to it, like it, it's going to taste like, um, uh, the winery wants it to taste coffee. However, yeah, you're right. It's like, um, selling someone, um, you know, uh, you can sell someone a slab of Kobe beef, you know, mm-hmm. and if they, uh, if the butcher hacks it up and then, you know, someone you know, puts it on their grill for an hour and a half and turns it to, you know, charcoal, it's going to taste terrible. Um, so, um, we run into that, that problem. Yeah. We run into that problem. And and so we, we try to, we're working with, um, uh, folks that we've, we feel like have that same, um, understanding of, uh, how this product can go wrong and how good it can be when it goes right. Yeah. And that's something I tell people all the time. Sometimes people come up to me and say, I've, you know, I've never, I don't really like coffee or I've never been able to drink black coffee. And my response is always, well, you've probably never had good coffee. Yeah. Um, because there are so many ways for coffee to get screwed up from the seed to the cup that few people uh, actually a- are able to enjoy it in its best form. So we work particularly with James Beard uh, you know, nominated restaurants or, or, uh, that, that caliber of restaurant that really cares about the quality of the product. Um, uh, acre restaurant in Auburn, uh, David Bancroft is one of our long, long time partners. And, um, we love those guys spring house in, um, on Lake Martin and uh, vintage year here in Montgomery. Uh, I mean, these are uh, the restaurants we work with. And then obviously, uh, you know, especially coffee shops that, that have the equipment that either have the training or, they, they want the training. They have a thirst for that kind of knowledge and they're going to come to us and other sources to get that knowledge because you're right. Like in, in our, our kind of philosophy on that is the fact that, you know, we buy really good green coffee, um, coffee that, that was cultivated by someone who uh, is, is very good at cultivating coffee that it's processed at origin by a, a mill that's very good. And it puts a lot of passion in the way they process the coffee and it that product has has had so much um, time and effort and passion and labor poured into it, even before I touch it as a roaster. And then we obviously are are, are going to great lengths to make sure it's roasted really, really well. Then, like we want to make sure that that process up until that point is respected. Um, and uh, I, I kind of the analogy I use a lot is like a a really good song. You know, it's like a you take. Um, Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. Like that's an awesome song. And, um, you know, a lot of people can, can hack it up and make it sound bad, but yeah. it's still a good song. And then you just like Jeff Buckley can sing it and it just elevates it to a whole yeah. other level. So like we, that those, that's what we want to do at the cafe. And that's what we want our partners to be able to do is take this thing that we've already poured a lot into that our producers have poured a lot into and like, Hey, take it to another level um, and make it even better. Like we welcome that 
Yeah. And you're, and you're, <clears throat> you know, like any, any, uh, any company that produces a product and sells a product, it's uh, your reputation is is based on the quality that customers experience. And you guys are putting another layer in between. Um, so you've got your own cafes where you guys can control a lot of that. But when you're selling it to someone else who's brewing it for their customers, um, you do have to be conscious and aware of uh of the fact that you, you seed some control over how your product is ultimately presented to people. And that's why I think in the specialty industry, you find so many people prevailing included that, uh, they do put a lot of effort into cultivating relationships with their, with their customers. Also, they, you know, like the, the coffee shop that I ran for a long time, uh, used counterculture and counterculture was always very, very responsive when it came to equipment issues. So they would always send a tech out as soon as they could to take care of the equipment because the equipment's such a critical piece of that, uh, that infrastructure. So I want to move on to, um, one other thing and, and I'm, I, you can probably tell I'm, I'm sort of like setting the base here of like people understanding the industry and what's involved with it. Um, I want to set another, uh, sort of another baseline for listeners about uh, the expense uh, related to getting into this industry. It, it is a very, uh, it's almost like manufacturing. Like when you're purchasing a roaster and you're finding the space for it and you're having that not just installed, but also inspected and signed off on. Um, a lot of people don't realize these coffee brewers and the fancy cafes that they go to, the, that espresso machine can be upwards of twenty to $30,000 sometimes. I mean, sometimes they're like $10,000, but the machine itself is a huge investment. The grinders can cost up to five grand. Um, you can, you know, a lot of people look at these mom and pop shops and think like, oh, that's cute. You, you've started a coffee shop. And what a lot of people don't realize is how, capital intensive getting that off the ground is. I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, it's, um, it's kind of a double-edged sword or, or there's two ways to look at it really. It's in, in, in some respects, you're saving a lot of money by doing a coffee shop rather than a full on restaurant, because, you know, I'm thankful that I don't have to have a bunch of gas lines run and a vent hood and, yeah. you know, a big hot top and, you know, the space is the square footage that's needed for a back of the house kitchen. Um, however, on the flip side of that, like you said, coffee equipment is, can be, especially if you're getting good equipment, it can be really, really expensive. And you're talking about a large capital outlay. You know, I'd say, to get just a, a good coffee shop up off the ground, you're looking at about $150,000 mm -hmm. and you got to make that back up, you know, at a five, $5 average ticket price, you know, oh, yeah. uh, that's, that's a long time before you see that investment back again. You have to do a lot of volume. Um, and uh, yeah. And, and, but it's, you, it's it, like I said, it's the double-edged sword. If you don't spend that kind of money, and you don't invest that kind of a time into making a quality product. Coffee, especially now, is a is one of the few industries right now that is becoming incredibly quality sensitive. Yeah, like in a lot of industries, even in F and B, you can kind of you can get away with like just really good marketing, um, mm -hmm. and you can have a subpar product, and as long as you sell the story well enough. Like people are still going to buy it and people will believe that it's better. Um, you know, coffee, however, in the last 10 years has started to really move away from that, uh, that you, you can get away with that and you, you've got to have quality. Yeah. Um, so you need to have that capital outlay. Um, 
so yeah, it's it's much more capital intensive than you would think um, for a small ticket yeah. price uh, industry. But on the other other hand, you know, you are getting away from you know restaurant build outs. You know, you you could get up into half a million in a big hurry too. So. Yep. Um, yeah, you can. And I think that's, uh, <clears throat> I think that has a pretty profound impact on strategy too. So like if you're gimme coffee and you're in the middle of New York city, you know, granted when New York city isn't shut down, but if, you know, you can, uh, you can absorb a lot of that capital outlay because you have, I mean, just gobs and gobs of people on the sidewalk all the time. You have just constant, uh, constant business, um, for, cities like Birmingham and for cities like Montgomery, there's not, there are pockets of places where people are on the sidewalk a lot and where you do get a lot of foot traffic, but it's not as easy to, uh, to just to hit the, the sheer numbers that you need to break even or even profit on a, on a really well built out shop. So I think, um, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on from a strategic standpoint, a lot of people that I've talked to in the industry, they think of their, when they have a, a roaster cafe sort of combo, like the one, two punch, the cafe is, uh, almost a, almost a marketing tool, right? It almost like, it almost, uh, it, it puts forth the ethos of the company. It sort of like is a visual demonstration of what we care about, what we believe. Uh, and then it's also a place where someone can go and experience the product that you're crafting in the roastery, the way that you intend for it to be experienced. And, and in my experience, the, the money usually comes from the wholesale side of things. Um, because it's just really, really difficult for the cafe to be terribly, terribly profitable. Yeah. If you're lucky, you can do it. But, um, and we were able to do it at the, the places that I managed, but that was, I mean, the amount of work that was required to make the cafe profitable versus the amount of work that was required to do, make the wholesale profitable was, it was a different ball game altogether. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts there. Yeah. So our strategy at this point is a little bit of a both and, um, okay. and we, the, the downsides of the wholesale, you're absolutely right. It, it's, it's more difficult to, the margins are just much slimmer in a cafe it, it, yeah. and you have to have volume and creating volume is difficult in a mid market city. Mm-hmm. Um, Unless, you know, like us right now in Montgomery, we're in a good spot because we don't have a ton of competition. There aren't a lot of specialty coffee shops uh, around. And then we're we're in downtown Montgomery. We're on Dexter Avenue. We're right between the Rosa Parks bus stop and Dr. King's Church. So yep. it's, a, it's a tourism hotspot. It's a phenomenal place to create community just in the backdrop mm-hmm. of that sort of history. Um, we're, we're very fortunate there. Now, our first shop was in um, downtown Auburn. And you would think that, like, I mean, we were uh, Auburn University, uh, you know, 25 yards from Tumor's Corner. And, you know, you would think that would be easy to get the volume you need there. But um, it was much harder than Montgomery just because it, you're on a, a seasonal, uh, yeah. crazy seasonal cash flow cycle. Um, I mean, when um, you know, from middle of December to the middle of January, and then again, May till August, uh, 40% of your customer base just disappears. Yeah. Um, so, and then, you know, not so much, you get a full week at spring break and fall breaks and stuff like that. So it was very challenging. So, um, it's very tough to get by on cafes in most circumstances. And even when you run a cafe super well, 
with the margins you have, you're really only you're just kind of giving yourself a job. You're making enough money to, you know, yeah. to, to give yourself a job. The scale comes in through the, the roasting. And now, but when you start doing wholesale roasting, um, it, it can get difficult too, because it's a pretty crowded space now. There are so many roasters out there. Um, and, um, and there's a lot of, um, uh, I don't, I'm trying to, <laughs> trying to phrase this uh as, as generously as possible as graciously as possible there, <laughs> i know where you're going yeah. yeah there are a lot of there are a lot of grifters out there there's sure. a lot of just kind of marketing gimmicks and a lot of you know just stuff that's just they're just trying to get people to fall for something um in the coffee world you know you get stuff like bulletproof coffee and um uh you know all this like super caffeinated coffee like mm-hmm. uh, what is what's the one that, that does death wish and um, it's just, you know, kind of, they're, they're really just clever marketing ploys. I mean, yeah. um, you start stripping back those layers and you realize there's not much there, but people buy that and you're competing with that. And mm-hmm. it, it, that can be difficult in the wholesale game, uh, to compete with just these different little marketing gimmicks. And then you're competing with, with massive companies, even just like regional standards, like Royal cup, I mean, that's a $330 million company that can just go to a restaurant and hand over, you know, ten thousand dollars worth of equipment on a free lease. Yeah. Um, and walk, you know, small, walk away and be independent. Fine. Yeah, small independent um, roaster. You know, we we don't have the capital to be doing that. Um, so it, it, the the wholesale game B two B gets real competitive. It gets kind of tricky. Um, so we do a good bit of that, and we're, we're very strategic with our partnerships and that. But ultimately, our strategy would be to build the retail presence, more cafes, more of our cafes. Um, and every time we create a cafe, if we open up a cafe, it becomes a really, really good and very loyal customer of our roastery. Sure. So it's a customer that we have total control over. You know, our Prevail Cafe is not going to stop buying coffee from our roastery. Um, yeah. However, you know, if uh, one of our other wholesale accounts, like, you know, their brother-in-law opens up a crappy coffee roastery tomorrow, then like, hey, they're gone. Yep. <laughs> uh, yep. Uh, so uh, it, and so it, it, for us, it makes sense uh, to, to move into that vertical integration. Um, and it also for us is from an ethos, like we, we believe in the American cafe. Like we believe in creating community spaces. Um, it is incredible to me to walk into our Montgomery cafe and just see the people there, the conversations that are happening, um, the connections that are being made. Um, and I, I want to replicate that in other communities and, and create spaces like that in other places. So, um, uh, from a business perspective and from, uh, just our, uh, philosophy, um, it, it that's the direction we're pushing. We're going to try to open up more cafes in, sure. in the near future and, and vertically integrate. And I don't know, there may be another step in that ladder too. We, we're, we work with a lot of direct trade relationships with farmers. So we may have an opportunity to do, um, you know, maybe some importing and, and different things like that, um, yeah. uh, further up the chain. Yeah. It sounds like you, <clears throat> you know, to compete with those Royal cups and whatnot that, uh, it's an expensive, it's an expensive road, but it sounds like if you were able to say go to a suburb in Atlanta, you could almost install a user base there. You know, you could have people when you're going to mm-hmm. restaurants and places like that to try and, and boost your wholesale presence. It's awfully helpful to have a 
uh, a group of customers already sort of installed in the community that say, Hey, we really love these guys. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's exactly it. The, the cafe, I mean, in our mind, like if we, let's say if we had five or six cafes, mm-hmm. I would probably just stop doing wholesale business development. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't stop selling wholesale coffee, but we just wouldn't do any wholesale business development because those cafes our pre-qualified wholesale buyers would be showing up in those cafes. They would already get our thing. You know, they would be like, yeah. they would go ahead and qualify themselves as a good customer and come to us. And uh, we're right now we're on the other side of it. We kind of, we're going out and we're finding customers and then we have to go through like a, a little bit of weird first date, yeah. you know, uh, <laughs> awkwardness me, to figure out, oh, okay. Like, is this, is this a customer that is going to be a good customer for us long term? Because, We've learned over the last few years that if a customer is not a good fit for us, um, even if they're buying a whole lot of coffee, it it, it just becomes a drag on the business. Yeah. Um, and that's no different in any other industry. I can tell you in consulting, <clears throat> it's the same thing. If you got a bad client, even if they're writing checks, it's it ends up being an, a, a net loss for you in the long run. You know, um, they start sucking up your time, uh, especially if you're like me. I don't bill hourly. I I just do like project based fees or or retainers. So, um, you know, managing my time is on my shoulders. So if I have someone that's just not a very mm-hmm. good client that's calling and calling and calling, it's like all of a sudden I turn around and go, I put twenty hours of my time this week into this one client. That's like, that's way too much. Yeah. Um, I totally understand what you're saying there. Um, well, and actually, and you brought up something I want to transition to, um, sort of the latter part of this interview into talking specifically about prevail. So I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about, um, about prevail and, and where the idea came from and, and just kind of give us the, uh, the short to medium version of like y'all's ethos. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I um, uh, I always like to start in this uh, this part. Uh, so eight, a little over eight years ago now. Um, wait, maybe even pushing towards nine now. I guess. Uh, but yeah. anyway, uh, something towards a decade ago. Um, um, my wife was uh, seven months pregnant with our first child. We had a West African refugee living in our basement. And, um, that is, uh, yeah, you know, like you do yeah. and, um, yeah, right. Uh, so, and that's the point where my wife and I decided that I would quit my job and become a barista, uh, which, nice. uh, led to a, uh, a really awesome conversation with my father-in-law. Um, yeah. uh, but we did the, the opposite of what most people do. I mean, most people, um, when they have their first child on the way, they kind of batten down the hatches try to find security as quickly as possible. They ask for a raise, they buy more insurance. Um, and, uh, we, uh, we just took it as, you know, we have this, um, we're bringing new life into the world and we're going to raise this kid. And we just want, we want her to know that her parents, uh, you know, live their, their calling, um, did what they felt like they were, they ought to do with their life. Um, and, um, so we jumped into it and we, we had decided on jumping into the coffee industry for two reasons. One, we come from nonprofit backgrounds. Um, uh, I, I, we've both been working uh, alongside a, a nonprofit uh, that did uh, education and economic development work in uh, Liberia, West Africa. Um, and they did a lot of micro lending. And we saw these ways that like equitable supply chains and like a well-crafted um, economic structure that's um, transparent, 
um, and sustainable can help people at a level that charity never can. Um, charity is good for some things. It's good for simple problems. You know, if you need a water well dug, you know, you pay $15,000, you dig the well, people have water. You just have to do some maintenance on the well. Um, that's done. Um, but when it comes to really improving the long-term livelihood, the generational impact, um, charity, you just can't do that. Um, yeah. you know, we need, um, equitable supply chains, um, and transparent, like a transparent capitalism, if I can use the dirty C word. Um, like, uh, it's been like such a, like, it's such a terrible thing to say. Like, it's like, we whisper capitalism. Um, but and and for many reasons, capitalism, you know, deserves that, that title, um, because there've been so many abuses of it, but at the same time, if it's done right, if we have this thing, you know, thing called capitalism, it's, it's equal exchange for mutual benefit. Like that's at the core of it. And if we can do that fairly and transparently, it can really be a, a, a great thing. Like coffee is this, you know, hundred billion dollar industry that's predicated completely on people who live between the 20th parallels in some of the most impoverished places on earth. Yep. And it can be a, um, a tool to empower those people or it can be a weapon to oppress them. Mm-hmm. And traditionally, it was a weapon to oppress them. It's been forced as this commodity product that we just buy at the cheapest prices possible and get out to the masses. Um, and we wanted to be a part of this group of people that have been moving since probably the 70s to change that um, in the specialty coffee industry. And, um, that had us on that end. And then on the other end, just this love for building community spaces and, um, and, and seeing authentic and diverse community happen. And, um, you know, I think that's a a love that a lot of people have. If you start talking to people who want to open up a business without fail, 90% of them be like, man, I'd love to open up a bar one day or a restaurant or a coffee shop because we just, everybody has that pull at their heartstrings that they, they, they want to create a place for people. Um, and we're no different. We, we wanted to create that. So, um, that's what brought us into it. And we didn't want to fly blind. So I quit my job and I became a barista. Um, I started working, especially coffee in the Atlanta area, um, at a specialty coffee shop there helped open a new specialty coffee shop working for that same roaster. And that, that shop's now, I think the, the highest volume specialty shop in Atlanta, so I, I kind of got um, trial by fire, um, and um, we uh, we launched our first coffee shop about two years after that. Um, I, I left my job with the roastery in Atlanta. We moved to Auburn and opened a college town coffee shop, and that um, parlayed into a roasting operation. And uh, eventually, we we very strangely just fell in love with Montgomery, uh, which I never thought that would happen. Um, but I, I truly love this community and, and we, we opened up a cafe here and then we um, moved headquarters here uh, about three years ago now, I think. And um, it's been, uh, been a pretty wild ride, but yeah. uh, uh, Montgomery has, has become like, when, it turn, talk, when we talk about like the, the, the ethos of what we want to accomplish, like Montgomery is like this great, um, you know, incubator um, for exactly what we're, we're trying to accomplish. Why is that? Um, because the rest of the state makes fun of Montgomery. The rest of the state makes fun of Montgomery. Yeah, it, it does. Like when I when I grew up, I said you know, like I said, I grew up all over Alabama, and Montgomery was always like seen as like the is like the place where dreams go to die. You know, yeah. like, like it just um, 
this sort of stagnant place that, I mean, if you think about Montgomery is like biggest, um, you know, economic uh, center is, is the state government. Like yeah. literally bureaucracy is um, Montgomery's calling card historically within the, the confines of, you know, the perception of the people in Alabama. And um, yeah, it just it sounds like a slow moving, stagnant, stuck in time place. Um, and then we, we came to Montgomery because we were kind of getting courted to open up a shop here. And I fell in love with it so quickly and it caught me so much by surprise because we started walking around downtown Montgomery and I realized, wow, like we're like, you know, I'm, I'm standing on, you know, the cobblestone street, uh, lower Dexter. And it literally, I'm standing on the same place where the like, human beings were bought and sold. Mm-hmm. at one time like where i'm standing and um and, and to have to like feel that and reckon with that in a very real way um and then also knowing that on those same stones that's also where um uh, the marchers from selma camped out right there on top of the former slave markets they camped out right there before uh king walked them up to the Capitol the next morning to deliver the um, how long, not long speech. Um, And you can walk out the door of where our cafe sits and, you know, I can point and I can say, Oh, that's, that's the bus stop where Rosa Parks got on the bus. And I can point up the road and say, that's the the church where Dr. King preached in the basement is where they planned the Montgomery bus boycott. Oh yeah. And that building, that's where Jefferson Davis um, had his inaugural ball. And then across the street, that's the winter building. That's where they sent the telegram to fire on Fort Sumter. Like that's literally where the civil war started. And then if you look up just, you know, a mile past that building, the Wright brothers started their first, the first civil aviation school in the country um, uh, at what is now Maxwell uh, Gunner. Um, And then, uh, you know, right up the hill, it's like, Hey, um, you know, this uh, African-American blues player uh, called Tita taught, Hank Williams play guitar right up the road, right there. And you know what? He's buried in the cemetery a couple blocks behind us. And that's just really the tip of the iceberg. It doesn't get into freedom riders and Frank M. Johnson, like all the other history that's just so saturated in Montgomery. And I just, Dexter Avenue is like the, it's like the rug that America swept everything under. Um, That's That's a really good way to put that. Yeah, it's this like, it, it, it's still it's not as bad as it was. It's it's turning around. We're in the middle of transition. But when we first you know kind of came to Montgomery and looked at it, it was this desolate stretch of road, mm-hmm. and it's the most important mile in America, in my opinion. I mean, mm-hmm. like name like maybe like there's some street in Boston where like Paul Revere rode down or something that you can make a claim. But like, I, I don't know. I think that like Dexter Avenue from the Capitol Building to the water has more history in it than anywhere in America. And I mean, I'm telling you, you could shoot a cannonball down Dexter Avenue uh, five years ago and not worry about hitting anybody. Um, yeah. yeah. And I, I really think that we had, it was like the civil rights movement happened and, and the center of it was Dexter Avenue in Montgomery. And after it happened, I think there was a generation of people who, and for, I mean, understandably so, I get this, Um I don't think it's right, but I, I can I can understand it and I can empathize to a degree with it. Is that after it happened, there was a generation of people who just said, 
Whew, okay. Yeah. We're done with that. That's over. Like, let's yeah. just walk away and like, and start just being, trying to be polite to each other. Yeah. Um, and, and like I said, Dexter Avenue is just the rug that it got swept under. And I think that maybe that was, there was some catharsis in that act of just like walking away from it and, and trying to be polite to one another. And that's how we kind of got along as a country, um, for a while. And, but what we realized is like, that didn't actually fix some things. There were some systematic things that still happened. We could do a lot of damage while still being polite to one another. You yeah. know, there could still be voter suppression. There could still be redlining. There could still be, um, you know, gerrymandering of districts and, and all these terrible things that were still happening. Um, and then I think our generation, this kind of millennial generation, came back to Dexter Avenue, pulled up the rug, and said, "Oh wow." Like there's actually some really amazing stuff here mm-hmm. and our generation is the first generation that maybe is sufficiently removed from those scars to be able to kind of take this, you know, um, take the junk out from under the rug and look at it and reckon with it a little bit and find the, the you know, the beautiful stuff that is there uh, and move forward with it. And uh, particularly in just the, the way that, you know, our national conversation is going right now um, and all this polarization um, and kind of everybody just retreats to their own, you know, bunker 50 yards away and throws hand grenades at each other. It's like Montgomery is so rich in dichotomy that it's uncomfortable, but you have to face it. Like you can't yeah. avoid it. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and I think just, yeah, go, yeah, go ahead. It's Sorry. a cool place to be. Yeah, I well, think. No, that's just, it's a, well, we're stepping on each other. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me. I'll just say this. This is what I. I um, this is just a crazy thing to me. Is that our shop exists in this space to where a couple blocks up the road is the SPLC, and mm-hmm. Southern Harbor Law Center is you know one of the most left leaning, progressive, civil libertarian um, you know uh, think tanks in America and not think tanks, but you know, legal defense funds. And then about three doors down from us is, um, the foundation from, uh, moral law, which yeah. is Roy Moore's yep. whole thing. The most right wing over the top, super conservative thing. Those, those are like, and we will have like fellows from SPLC and, um, you know, runners and, and fellows from the foundation for moral law, they will both be in our shop at the same time. That's like there bonkers. exists a place in America where that happens. Yeah. Um, and, and that, that, that kind of makes us uncomfortable to know that, but I think it, it's the only, like, I'm a big, I'm a stoic from the word go. And I just feel like, you know, the obstacle is the way So I think that the, the way that we move forward out of this kind of whatever this thing is that we're, we're going through in the country is to, you know, kind of be proximal to it and, and yeah. work, you know, you know move through it rather than avoid it. <laughs> I, I, I could not agree with that more. And I also, this is one of the reasons that, um, especially after our pre, uh, pre recording call that I was really excited to talk to you. And one of the reasons that even though my career path has taken me away from food and beverage and away from the coffee industry, one of the things, one of the reasons that coffee is still near and dear to my heart 
is because it does evoke these conversations across the country. I mean, Montgomery is a pretty saturated place. And by the way, the reason I made that snarky comment about making fun of Montgomery is because I knew you would say all that. Um, Because I I agree. I feel like Montgomery is probably the beating heart of Alabama and its history. So, um, and its history in relation to the country. But um, coffee is a, uh, I think a lot of products can can claim this, but coffee uh, in particular is a, is a product of social justice issues and uh, economic justice issues. And um, it's a, it's a weighty subject. There's a lot to, to dig into there, but it, one of the things that I always loved about it was the craft, um, obviously the, the flavor, the, the quality of it, but also that it, to be an active participant in that, uh, in that industry, it, you have to confront a lot of those issues. You have to think about a lot of those issues for some reason. Uh, I'm, I, again, I know it, it is, it's, it's a part of a lot of different industries and products, but for some reason with coffee, it's very, uh, it's very much on display. It's, it's, it's impossible to ignore. So I want to, um, turn just a little bit cause you know, this is a business podcast. And so, um, I want to <laughs> kind of round out our, our conversation real quick and just, uh, you know, for I think a lot of people that are listening to this have probably heard some things about the coffee industry that they never knew or never thought about. And so I wanted to see, um, you know, if you had to give someone some advice uh, that is interested in exploring the world of coffee, whether that's from a consumer standpoint, a retail standpoint, or even thinking about uh, opening up a, a coffee uh, a coffee shop or even a roastery, what's, you know, if you had to pick one, maybe two pieces of advice, what would you give them? Um, I would say, first of all, um, really understand and second guess and triple check your expectations. Um, I think that there are plenty of people who've jumped into coffee and they've seen like a high margin product, especially in like the cafe. Um, and they discount that low ticket price. They're like, yeah. oh, well, I can I can buy it for X and sell it for Y. That's a 70% markup. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Like, that's great. Well, you know, a 70% markup still means that, you know, you're putting $2 in your pocket every time you do that. And, yeah. um, and, and that's, that's difficult. Um, I think, um, and then once you get past that, that, that double and triple check of like, hey, am I, am I cut out for this kind of, a, a, you know, an existence? Where, where I really have to carve this, this sort of a living out, you know, making my living like four or five bucks at a time. Um, and you get on the other side of that. Um, I think um, asking yourself like, okay, why am I going into this? Am I going into this because I just really like coffee and I like the, the, the taste and I like to tinker around with different um, ways to extract coffee and I enjoy coffee. Um, that's cool. Like you've got an awesome hobby. I like some of my best <laughs> friends and, and people who are like really innovative, like, you know, I'm a coffee professional and I, I get, I hear innovative things about, you know, coffee roasting and extraction from people who are just hobbyists, you mm-hmm. know, like, that's great. Do that. Um, but if it goes a step further for you, it's like, Hey, like I really see this as a, a conduit for what I want to accomplish as a person, Yeah, you know? Um, then, uh, and, and then I think it's, it's worthwhile to step into it because, um, this is not there. My, my friend, Jason Domini, who's an old school coffee pro, like he's Jason. out of coffee now. 
you know jason yeah okay jason's crazy man but um you know he was he was like chair of the barista's guild for several years and um he told me one thing he said man i'm gonna write a book called how to make money in the coffee industry in the specialty coffee industry and uh it's gonna be 100 pages long and 99 of them are gonna be blank and the last one is gonna say get out yeah. <laughs> um, I, love, I love that. I feel like when, when I asked that question, I genuinely wanted to hear your answer, but I feel like, uh, the, the snarky answer to that when I, when I say, you know, what's your, what's your one piece of advice? I was thinking, don't, <laughs> it is a, yeah. it is a hard, hard, hard industry to make a living in. Um, it, as we explored at the very top of this recording, um, it's extremely capital intensive. Um, it is an extremely sensitive product. It doesn't, uh, you can't recover a, a, a coffee cherry, you know, if it's grown in, improperly, if it's processed poorly, you can't recover it at any stage of the process from seed to cup. Uh, if something goes wrong, uh, and the margins, while the margins themselves are, are high, you know, 70% sounds great. Like you just pointed out, but 70% on five bucks is still not a lot of money. You know, it's not, it's not a, not an easy yeah. way to pay your people and to pay yourself. Now, now that we have, now that I've like kind of just dunked on the idea of Eviscerated um, it. ever doing this, <laughs> I'm going to give the, I'm going to give the, the reason why I still do it. And the reason why I think more people should. And, and, that is that I don't come from a lot of money, you know, like I don't, I, I'm definitely not a trust fund baby. Like I grew up very, um, I always, uh, <laughs> I think when we, we spoke earlier, I said, like I had this revelation. I was watching, uh, uh, Dave Chappelle, do was one of his specials, uh, recently. And, uh, he said, you know, my parents did just well enough to where I could grow up poor about around a bunch of white people. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, cause like everybody just thinks that Chappelle like, you know, grew up in the hood and he didn't, he grew up in Silver Springs, Maryland. That's actually yeah. where my sister-in-law's from. And, um, like, and, but like, I was, I was that kid, like I went to like a pretty affluent school, but like I had, you know, two income family, um, you know, we, we did all right. I mean, you know, but like we, I was not, didn't come from money. Um, all that to say, um, this year, not because I'm able to write a check or anything like that, but like uh, because of the the choices we've made and the way that we run our business and um, the way that we source our products and the relationships that we have with our um, our um, vendors and producers, uh, we're gonna make about a two hundred thousand dollar impact on things like um, sustainable farming practices in the developing world on, uh, you know, local uh, organic agriculture. Um, you know, these things that are, that really make an impact on the world. Like I don't have, never have had and probably never will have the kind of money to just stroke a check for $200,000. But, um, you know, we've, we as a family um, have, uh, decided to, to live our life in such a way that it impacts the world um, that way. And that's a really awesome thing to be able to just like take a breath every now and then and look up and like, I don't run a nonprofit, you know, mm-hmm. I, I make money, you know, we, sure. and, and, and I keep bread in my belly from the money that I make, but then also on a grander scale, um, we're, you know, we're 
we are making the world a better place and, and not in like a small, like, Hey, I, you know, I, I buy organic sheets instead of conventional, you know what I mean? Like not that there's, you know, like, yeah, do that too. Sure. Um, but you know, there's like, look back and go, man, like almost a quarter million dollars of impact. Um, yeah. that's nuts. So, um, that's what keeps me going that and just community, um, yeah. you know, just, just being able to work around the folks that I work around and, and just uh, be around the customers that we have. And, um, you know, you know, as, as well as that is like all roads lead back to coffee. So, um, yeah, I just get to meet the most fascinating people. And, um, I mean, I, we, in Auburn, uh, Tim Cook used to walk into our coffee shop, like anytime yeah. he was in Auburn, Yep. uh, you know, and, uh, like I'm, I've had, uh, several chats with Tim Cook because, you know, <laughs> I made him coffee, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, it's, that's what keeps me going. Uh, it's definitely not the money. Although we've gotten to the point now, I will say like, uh, you know, it's not like we just were live this like masochistic life of destitution, you know, where we're just like digging out of the dumpster for food or anything. Um, first yeah. few years, I think we were close to that, yeah. but we've built, we've scaled enough to where like, you know, I'm, I, I live in an okay, comfortable life now. Like, you know, mm-hmm. we, we got two cars, we got to, you know, own a nice, you know, house in a decent neighborhood and yeah, yeah. we're, you know, uh, so, um, you know, taking care of ourselves and, um, creating awesome community and making the world a better place. And, you know, that's, that's just the lifestyle that I want to have. And, I and can't, it's a good thing. I can't think of a better, this is not to knock the, the entire food and beverage industry. Cause I, I come from all of it from bartending to cooking to coffee roasting, uh, I cannot think of a better community than the coffee community, the specialty coffee community. Uh, it's all of the fun of the restaurant industry without uh, all of the bad in the restaurant industry. Yeah, there's, an, yeah. there's an awful, awful lot of that. But, you know, man, I, I think that like just that alone is a is a is an excellent place to to wrap this up. Um, you know, I was so excited about bringing you on here because, again, my world has turned into software and like emerging technology and, 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 and that's all really, really cool. But like, it is important to remember that entrepreneurial spirits, um, and then just good, good hearted people are doing a lot of work and putting a lot on the line to start these businesses that are very, very difficult to get off the ground. Um, and to be able to do that and to contain or to, to maintain your perspective of, having impact is, uh, is, is impressive because personally, when my bank account starts to dwindle, I start to panic and hoard. That's my, that's my MO is like, Oh my God, hold on to everything. And, and, uh, I just respect so much the, that that's an industry you as a person, but also that that's an industry that has such a focus on, uh, on community and on giving back and how, uh, how, present and and visible issues um like we discussed are are in that industry so man i really i really appreciate you taking the time um you know if you want to tell everybody uh real quick before we sign off here um website uh social where can people find you guys yeah um prevail coffee dot um i'm sorry yeah prevail coffee.com uh or <laughs> prevail roasters.com prevail coffee.co Sorry, yeah. I uh, we're we're in a whole ICANN dispute over the domain name for PrevailCoffee.com. People, oh, good. Uh, someone's sitting, someone's just squatting on it. So, yeah. if anybody's like uh, out there listening that has like a particular um, specialty in resolving those sorts of disputes, holler at me. We've been fighting that for like five years. So, yeah. um, 
you can go to coffee.com and fire off emails to that administrator, like cussing at them and stuff. That would be awesome. But if you want to buy <laughs> coffee, you go to prevailroasters.com or prevailcoffee.co. Um, okay. They'll lead to the same place. Um, you can sign up for a subscription. We'll send you coffee in the mail. You don't have to think about it. It just shows up in your inbox. Um, uh, or if you are in Montgomery, which you totally should go to Montgomery. Um, I know some people are like cutting their travel short. Maybe you're thinking about going to, uh, uh, Disney World, and you're like, man, I'm not going to do that now. I'm just going to go down to the beach for the week. Well, you're going to go 65. You're going to go right through Montgomery. Stop. Stay a night. Soak it in. It's a really amazing place. You'll be super surprised. And uh, come and have a cup of coffee with us. Uh, 39 Dexter Avenue, like I said, right between the Rosa Park bus stop and Dr. King's Church. Um, a beautiful space. Um, our um, My business partner, uh, Philip, his wife is an interior designer. She did the whole thing and just absolutely blew us away. Um, so yeah. you can find us on Instagram, prevail at prevail coffee and, um, the shop, the cafe's Instagram is at prevail union MGM. Um, and, uh, I do want to say, I want to say one thing you were talking about the coffee gets the best of the food and beverage industry. Um, that's because, um, we get the only part of the food and beverage industry that's capable of waking up at 6 a.m. Yeah, <laughs> that is a, that is a fair point. It t- turn it flips all of that on its head, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I remember, yeah. I remember many, uh, many more 4.30 a.m. mornings getting ready for work. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I do. Man, um, thank you so much. Um, I can uh, back up everything that you just said. Uh, I have been in the shop. I've been. I've had the occasion to go to Montgomery for several different reasons, um, and I think that uh, uh, you guys are just doing a killer job. Um, I love your shop. I love your product. Um, so thank you for sharing your time, your wisdom, your insight, and uh, this will be uh, – we'll link to all that stuff in the show notes. I'm also uh, now putting these on YouTube, so you guys will be able to find a Newberry Consulting uh, YouTube channel. Um, this is the COVID-19 era. So like I'm wearing an active t-shirt and you know, Wade, you've got your lights turning off here and there, but I know a lot of people, a lot of people consume their content, even audio content on YouTube. So you guys go there. If that's where you prefer to get it, go check it out there. Um, but until next time, thank you so much again, Wade. I hope you, uh, have a lovely day. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, man.